You're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast, where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods, as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed for equity and inclusion, working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. Okay. Hello. Hello, everyone. I am your host for season two of the Fearless Futures podcast. My name is Sable Lomax. Pronouns are she and her. Today, I'm super excited that we get to speak to someone who I'm assuming it's sunny, a sunny day in California. For episode five, we are going to be talking about how to build an inclusion and equity team. Megan has a specialty. I'm calling it a specialty in this space, has great experience doing so. And I know that organizations oftentimes seek to do this um, or might be having conversations about doing it is usually part of a strategy. So I'm really, really excited for today's conversation. So who do we have? We have none other than Megan Collar Dwyer. Megan Collar Dwyer is the Senior Director of Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Zendesk. Megan leads the strategy and teams focused on sourcing diverse talent communities, diversity business partners, and driving equity and inclusion throughout all people, processes, and practices. She blends D&I, subject matter expertise, with extensive learning and development experience, D&I consulting work, strategic partnership skills, and a strong belief that we all have the capacity for change. Megan, welcome. How how are you today? It's still a little early on your side. It is, but I'm doing well. I've been looking forward to this and I'm so happy to be here. Before we dive in, because I'm really excited, like I said, to chat about this conversation because it's a topic that if you don't already have a DEI team internally or a committee, conversations might be happening. It might be something you're considering for the future. And I do think it's really, really insightful to be able to get some tips along the way, lessons learned, and and so forth and so forth. But before we go there, I've been asking this question of every guest thus far, and it's now your turn. Don't be alarmed. It's not a it's not a tricky question whatsoever. But in terms of your experience with equity and inclusion, what has been a mic drop learning moment for you? So this could be like the first time you thought about equity in the first place, or just like a, you know, a key moment, a pivotal moment that will always, you know, ring true for you. There are so many, like, I, I think part of being in this space professionally inherently means I'm having mic drop moments all the time, (laughs) like years and years in, because we're always learning, like our own knowledge of our own identities and communities around us is always changing and evolving. But two stand out to me when you ask today, at least one is I think back to my time in university, when I took a course that I wasn't sure what I was getting into. I it was one of the you know, it, it qualified for some sort of general ed credit. And it yeah, right, like it was what was available. And it ended up being an exploration of um, multiracial and multi multi ethnic solidarity and coalitions in US history. As a general and, ed requirement, I think I'm jealous, but keep going. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that literally was what the focus was. And I got to learn from incredible folks in that course. And 
really a mic drop moment was the power of coalitions and solidarity and the fact that there is so there are so many examples in history of those coalitions being true that I had never been exposed to. And so it was like a, a real awakening. I learned a lot about the history of Los Angeles. We ended up doing like a case study um, and the moments in which that very large and diverse city has built multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalitions to create positive change. And so that was certainly a mic drop. And, and it stays with me now is how do we do this work in solidarity? And then second, I'll, I'll say there too, um, I have learned a tremendous amount from the disability community. I myself have a disability um, and I'm always learning and just the fundamentals of inclusive design of this concept of asking the question, who are we centering? Are we taking, you know, an approach where we are thinking about the most excluded, the most marginalized, the most underserved users or whatever the, the framing might be? Um, that feels sort of inherent to this equity work now, but there was a moment in time in which I realized asking the question, who are we centering? Who do we need to decenter? Whose needs are we really trying to meet was pretty, pretty aha for me. Actually, I'm thinking, you know, oftentimes because Fearless Futures, as you know, we facilitate training for education and people will often ask, you know, what's something we can do now? Generally speaking, I think that participants are looking for something very active and physical in nature. But just those two questions that you highlighted, you know, and we often will share it. It's like, well, first, if you slow down and think through for yourself, who am I prioritizing? Who am I deprioritizing? That alone is a significant start to adjusting the way in which you go about your day-to-day -day work, whatever that might be. I appreciate yeah. that as like a mic drop moment because it doesn't feel significant sometimes for people, but it really does begin to change the way in which you view, you know, whatever work you're doing by thinking, who am I centering, like you said, and who might I be decentering, and what's the impact of being decentered in that particular context or scenario? So, I really love. I, I like that. I like that. Okay, talk to us. How did you come to this work? Because you know what, you when you ask children, and I don't think it's a fair question to ask children, but what do you want to be when you grow up? You hear dancer, doctor, lawyer, teacher. You know, sometimes engineer, depending on you know who they've been exposed to. You know, I don't think there's a child that maybe now, but I haven't met them or heard a story where they're like, I want to do work in the equity and inclusion space at the age of five. So it's like, how, how did you how did you come to this work? I love that question, Stable, and that observation, because I think we all come to this work in unique ways. And it's one of the things that makes doing this work so great. And for folks who are interested in either getting more formally involved in diversity, equity, inclusion work, or who are currently finding themselves into that work, I think we've all taken circuitous paths. <laughs> um, and so I love that, that you're asking this. I mean, a couple things for me, well, you know, lots of our stories start early on. And I was raised initially by, uh, my parents were both police officers, which is pretty unique. <laughs> and we're white. So both my parents are white. And I grew up in the 80s. And, um, and watching and learning from what it was like for them to be in those positions of power 
and to learn and sometimes not learn and be aware and sometimes not be aware of systemic oppression, of the impact of racial profiling, which in many places was actually like encouraged at the time in police departments. And um, I grew up in Southern California. And so hence some of the interest in LA history. We had conversations about this pretty early on, about things like power and racism and even just racializing people. I watched my parents make a lot of mistakes. Both of them ended up leaving the profession. That's early stage. Like this is pre, you know, I wasn't consciously thinking, oh, wow, you know what I want to do is I want to get into, you know, equity work because um, I still didn't have exposure to that. But those are some of the, the seeds being planted. And then I really credit a lot of how I got to where I am in this work, large part due to the education I had access to. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to study at an institution where Claude Steele became the dean while I was there okay. and he had coined the term stereotype threat. So like learned from folks like him and Carol Dweck, who set up a growth mindset lab, like some real important folks who were thinking about the impact of things like stereotype threat and the, the mindsets we have for others and ourselves. Um, and that led me to education. That's where I started my career as classroom teacher. I was lucky enough to teach in Oakland in the Bay Area. That's where I lived for a long time before moving down to San Diego. And um, I worked alongside family members and incredible activists in that community. I mean, there is such a rich history in Oakland oh, sure. of, of folks steeped in their lived experiences of transformative and restorative justice and, you know, expanding access. So all of those led me to ultimately realize, wait a minute, <laughs> there's a world in which you can do this work full time, you can do this work intentionally, and you can do it in the corporate sector, which wasn't something I was aware of for a long time. And that last point, there's so many spaces that many of us are unaware of as possibilities for you know work. So how many teams have you built in the past? So I've been a part of, I've either built or been a part of building four equity and inclusion teams at different organizations. So one at an education technology company, one at a DEI consulting firm, one at a larger technology company. And again, I'm still in technology now. Okay. So, so you have, I knew it was more than two, but I just wanted to confirm you clearly, you have some experience with building teams from, I'm just going to say from scratch and building essentially growing and building a department from scratch is no, that's no easy feat, no matter what the department or team is. And I'd argue it's probably, or has the potential to be even more, um, challenging and requiring a little bit more craftiness to the approach because oftentimes folks aren't seeing the value in having a full team to do this work and assume that like one person can take on the responsibility for all the work that has to be done. When you're building a team, what's front of mind for you during this process? Building an equity and inclusion team isn't easy, but it's worthwhile work. Very true. Very true. <laughs> Uh-huh. What is kind of front of mind in the in the building phase really is in my experience, and I've learned lessons the hard way here and also, you know, been reinforced and able to do this successfully, is there has to be a co-creation and a leader-led approach. Like there needs to be what we know doesn't work 
and many organizations have tried, is to just prop up a, a DEI team or a diversity inclusion belonging team or a justice like equity diversity. You know, might be. We, yeah. yeah, we're throwing the acronyms, all, all important things. And then to say, okay, great, you have to figure it Go. out, right? Like our employees are not feeling a strong sense of belonging. Hey, two people on the DEI team, you need to figure this out, right? Or um, we need you to fix it. That approach is not going to be effective, right? One, because we know two people really don't actually have access to influence and power in a massive culture change way within an organization. And it's missing, I think, the key point, which is their shared ownership, right? This sort of leader-led model. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. like that you're highlighting that because oftentimes what we'll see is, oh, we have a team who's responsible for that. And there's separation and, you know, mindsets between what senior leadership is responsible for and then what the, you know, the DEI team, INE team, INB team, you know, whatever, B for belonging in this instance, is responsible for it. And that disconnect between the two, like you said, it doesn't set a team up to be successful in the end. So I love no. that. You, you're you're getting right in there like, first of all, this is something that needs to be considered. <laughs> if you had to say um, or explain to someone, knowing what you just shared in terms of a leader-led approach, what would you say is the purpose um, of putting together a DEI team in the first place? One is there really are incredible subject matter experts in this field. I, I like, I think that needs to be said because many of us have a combination of, you know, passion, interest, lived experience and learned experience. And, and there, this field, just like other fields, like requires skill building and knowledge acquisition and really requires diverse teams too, right? Because like I mentioned, the power of solidarity and coalitions, like we can't do this work alone. So whether that's that you're able to build out and resource the team internally or who are the communities, the organizations, the voices that you're pulling in to do this yeah. work. Yes, exactly. Because oftentimes it starts small. So you might be the only one or the one, the one of two on yeah. the team, right? And so as you advocate for more resources to grow the diversity and the size of your own team, there are lots of ways to acquire that subject matter expertise. And I want to be super clear that like lived experience is a key element of that expertise, but is not the only piece. And so I think sometimes, because I think there's two, there's a, a risk factor here and a let's let's um, get it right piece. And the risk factor is that we assume that people who we often consider represent quote unquote diversity in an organization, which really means come from historically or currently underrepresented, under-resourced, under-access communities, um, that somehow that just means you should do this CEI work. Right. Like we know that and, uh, and sometimes it's unintentional and sometimes it's intentional that that burden gets placed on folks who are carrying the identities. And there are a lot of people who want to do DEI work who come from those communities. Many of us do, um, but not all of us. And so there's a purpose of having a DEI team and really bringing in folks to do this work intentionally yeah. so that you're not burdening your employees who likely are underrepresented within the organization 
to just figure out as they go yeah. how to do this formally, often on top of their day. You know, I'm really, really glad that you mentioned that because oftentimes I think this field doesn't get the same respect that other fields get. So just top of mind, I'm thinking an engineer or a psychologist, a sociologist, and so forth and so a biologist. I mean, all the fields you can think of. And there's this idea that, like you said, you can just pull someone in and they're going to be able to go. And the danger in assuming that representation of a particular identity group, you know, those who've been mar are marginalized and have been historically can just sit in this seat miraculously and tell you this is what's required for inclusion and equity. And that is sometimes the case and sometimes it's not. Um, and, and really leaning into the, the nuance there that just because someone is from a particular group does not mean that they have a complex structural analysis of the systems versus an individual experience. And not to discount it, but when we're talking about structural change, that does require a different level of understanding, knowledge, and expertise. So I'm really, really glad you highlighted that because you don't hear that often. I think it's, it's for those two purposes, right? Because we don't want the burden falling onto folks who quite frankly aren't interested. That's a reality like, there too. There are lots of people. You might not yeah, want to. Right? Like, like I, I'm living it, my own individual experience. I do not have the interest or desire in getting really um, effective at, you know, instructing on structural change. Like you have to develop skills around organizational development, psychology and behavior change, influence often without authority. You know, you know, yes. Often training and learning and is, is embedded into here. What would you say, and you've kind of spoken to it indirectly, what are some of the common pitfalls that you've seen be made by organizations? Or maybe, you know, one you've experienced yourself in the, cre you know, in the building of teams, you know, when it comes to let's get this crew together. Or like you say, it often is one person and then it's two. And slowly by surely there's like, you know, a full team. And even then, just to contextualize this for folks, we're not talking about a team of 20 or, or 30 or 40 here. We, we might be talking six to eight, eight to 10. Um, so like, what, what are some of the common pitfalls that you think that, you know, you can like flag on field. If you see this, pause, stop, take a breather, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I will say one big flag is resourcing. Oh, like yes. one of the reasons that brought me to Zendesk, which is where I am now, is this is an organization that's resourcing the team, the budget for the work that we actually go out and do, right? Because it's, it's, do you have the people? Are they the people that have the right skills and interests to do this work, right? Did they, did they actively choose to be in this work? And do they have subject matter expertise? Are they supported? Do they have the relationship capital the access to leadership and decision-making? Do they have just literal money? Because this work takes it money. Takes money. <laughs> um, Can you just say that one more time? Yeah. It takes Thank you. money. Continue. <laughs> yes, it does. And so this leads us to some of the common pitfalls, which I for sure experience and sometimes 
you know, been a part of myself and, and have learned along the way. One is that you can't assume this work doesn't take money, right? Like even in partnerships, right? When you want to get, and we talked about that strategy, if you are small and, and you want to, you know, really tap into communities and voices, you've got to pay those yeah. folks. You've got to show, if you're showing up in community, social impact, in partnerships, right? Like it's, you're asking a lot from communities. Um, you got to add value yeah. back in. That's key. Even when you're small and early, there needs to be budget. Um, and quite frankly, at this point, if there's not budget, there's not commitment. Like, I'll, I'm going to no, name, name it. Name <laughs> so, it. like, there's not authentic commitment. If, if you're in an organization that is not willing to put any money towards this work, and yet they say that it's important, there's some gap between. And what I think we'll probably get at, like, performative allyship in this conversation at some point, because that is a pitfall. There is a possibility of companies who are well-meaning of saying that this work matters. And saying they want to increase representation of particular populations. Um, and there being a gap between those intentions and the, the reality, reality yeah. of what's in place to actually be able to build out a roadmap to get there, to, you know, really actually achieve those goals. So big, big, big thing is, is resourcing. Um, another pitfall I would say is honestly, and this is really relevant in this moment in time when we're all feeling overwhelmed and there's just so much going on in the world, but we often expect the moon and the stars from DEI teams, particularly small, nimble, agile, incredible, you know, diversity and inclusion teams. That is a recipe for burnout. This work is challenging on a good day because we all bring our own identities into it. Most of us are really personally motivated to do this work. We want to create bridges and coalitions and, you know, amplify voices, enable and empower everyone to be part of transformative change, right? Like, this is big. It's a, it's a large sort of hairy yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, and that's on a good day. And sometimes there are moments, too, like having a conversation with a leader who is not as far along in their really? own awareness yeah. journey. And some of the things they're saying quite frankly, are microaggressions that might, and micro inequities that might impact you directly as a person in this work who holds identities and lived experiences. So you're navigating this, you're code switching a lot in this work. It's, it's challenging. And we often go over capacity on these teams on what we expect for them in terms of how quickly they can do things, how much change they can help drive, um, and uh, I would say a pitfall is not leaving a buffer. Like we don't ever, I don't ever want my DEI team working at 120% capacity on the regular because you know what? There are things that happen out in the world that become microcosms inside our organization. Like there is a war going on, right? That impacts each and every one of us in different ways. And some of us in very disproportionate ways but it will come into the workplace. These things that happen in our outside lives, if you will, very much directly come in, whether we are fully aware of that. I'm glad that you said that because oftentimes I feel like in, in certain conversations, there's this belief or desire that once we go into work, even if you're still home, 
um, working from home or there's a current hybrid setup or you're, you're back in the office Monday through Friday, start to finish. There is this desire or belief that I get to shut off and lock in and it's just the work and there's no impact and infiltration of what's going on outside in, in the workplace. And with that, some companies even saying we don't we don't do politics in the workplace, we don't do inclusion, we don't bring that inside. But if we really looked at it, our workplaces is a microcosm or our microcosms of the greater world of of society. So that's not really realistic. So I just love that you're you're yeah. amplifying that because it's it's a piece that is often left out or underscored in a way you know it should get a little bit more attention that that it currently does across the board. Really, two comments on that because I I love that you are sort of highlighting this. One, there's incredible work from Michelle Mijung Kim around the political is personal and how it comes into play at work. She also recently wrote a book called The Wake Up, highly recommend for anyone who's interested in, in being part of DEI work. An element to doing this work as diversity, equity, inclusion practitioners, of um, it's inherent, we, we have to stay responsive. Like I think that's actually a really, a, a key skill that you build over time in this work. Like how do we stay responsive to the needs of our employees? How do we constantly interrogate who are we centering and what's the impact? And how do we stay responsive, like you said, to those outside things that we know very much are impacting yeah. everyone? And it's culturally different depending on where you are in the world to some degree, but we're all whole human beings, right? Um, no matter what, and we're moving through space that way. And I am grateful to the changing demographics of the workforce because more and more employees are expecting companies to be advocating for policy changes, for structural changes like LGBTQ rights in the U.S., which in, in the southern states right now are really coming into um, a place that we need advocacy and, and to change. So their employees have new expectations of companies, and that's helping leaders, I think, evolve in their inclusive leadership journeys to understand, I may not see the exact connection to our day-to-day -day work, to your point, that kind of in the office moment, whatever it might be, but I'm hearing and understanding this is important to employees. So what can we do? How can we be part of bigger systemic change? It's interesting that you raised that point in terms of like expectations that are increasing for many folks and leaving if expectations aren't being met and so forth and so forth. And to that, it was something that you said in there in terms of, you know, all of the different laws and bills that are being passed in Southern states. So um, Texas has been mentioned several times. There's different things happening there. Florida has been mentioned several times. I was just looking on my phone and Missouri has passed, I think it's Missouri, that has passed a particular bill that makes it illegal to leave the state if you want, if parents want to receive care for their transgender child. So that, you know, things are happening. Yet some of these same companies that are pledging and providing money for Pride Month and saying like, here's this, you know, donation to this organization, donation to this organization. 
in the same that same company is donating to politicians who are you know giving the vote to pass these bills that are negatively impacting parents of trans children and trans children themselves so i say all that to say for a dei team how do you view holding up the mirror to leadership to say what does actual commitment look like continuously and not I'm for rights on Monday and on Tuesday I'm supporting someone who's boldly and directly not like how do you hold the mirror to that a couple of things here are a few thoughts they're a little scattered but one just this idea of holding the mirror to leadership I think is an incredibly powerful uh, metaphor for us to hold as, as practitioners and leaders in this space. And I think it's really beneficial to be direct when you do this work with your, with the leadership you're interacting with. Like I have described to the, to the folks I'm still meeting leaders and, and getting to know and establishing relations with Zendesk because I'm only a couple months in, but in past experiences too, I like to call myself a compassionate challenger. That's the, the language I've come to use. And I'll say that to leaders. I say, you can think of me as a compassionate challenger. I'm going to challenge you when it is for the benefit of our employees or be, when it is holding us accountable to commitments we've made or when it is about aligning with the company's values, right? Like I'm going to challenge and it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes. I'm going to do it from a place of compassion and understanding that you are a human being on this journey with me, that we don't have it all figured out and that we're learning as we go. And so like mistakes are gonna be made, things are gonna be tweaked, right? Like sometimes aha moments, I mean, you asked, you started the call with like mic drops no moments. I think that place of compassion is holding that belief that we all have the capacity for change and that we all have been influenced by our own mic drop moments and there are still more mics to be dropped, right? So, so how can we, how can we be together on that? And so that framing has been helpful to me. Like, I think it can be, if you are doing this work as you know, or you want to do this work, um, being upfront and direct, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to be the compassionate challenger. I like that. I'm going <laughs> to you know, steal I, that from you. I would say borrow, but borrow insinuates I'm going to return it to you. So consider it stolen. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It is up for grabs. The other thing too is, you know, we know that data and examples are just really powerful for most of us. Like our, the way our brains work and particularly leaders and organizations have gotten so accustomed to kind of seeing data and information. And I think that can be a really helpful tool here too, right? Like, I think it's going to be really interesting. Some of what we've been seeing with the war and the invasion of Russia into the Ukraine is we're, we're seeing some companies pull out business from partnerships with Russia that they formerly held and, and make some pretty bold moves. That is a good example, potentially, this is just, you know, me speaking a bit generally here, but that's a good example to point to as like, ooh, okay, there was a moment in time in which we took bold action in order to align with a commitment. Have we done that in other circumstances? Like, are we consistent in that, right? So you can use these, new, these data points to say, hey, here's an example of when we did this well. Right now feels like an example of when we're debating 
right? Like it feels like a mismatch. Why is it that we think this is a situation where we wouldn't want to, you know, take action to, to be consistent or be aligned here, like not show up on a Monday supporting this and on a Tuesday directly, you know, dismantling yeah. that support. I like that, that idea of the mirror and what was jumping out at me is this notion of transparency and accountability. Because when I think about in particular, what's happening right now with Ukraine and Russia, just like you said, we've seen immense support in a way that I cannot recall seeing in other contexts. So it's like, okay, if someone feels that it's a positive thing or a bold statement rather, because positive can might not be the best word, but it's bold for a company or companies to say, you know, we're not going to support this and this is our role. Your example with Ukraine and Russia, you know, it could be a bold move to say as a company, you know, we stand for this, you know, and we're committed to this. And because of that, these are the decisions that we're going to make. And I think there, there's power and value there. And I think at the same time, using our analogy of the mirrors, like let, let's be transparent. And this might feel, using your language, uncomfortable. What about when it was Syria and Yemen and Palestine and other places? There wasn't such boldness there. And let's interrogate that. We are okay with prioritizing this group, but even within that, African students are having difficulty, you know, getting out of the country and getting to safety. So even in this praise, it's like there's, it's a little bit more complex than that. And having leaders get to a space, I love this compassion challenging of saying yes and X, Y, Z. I think this is looping back to some of what we started on, on who are we centering who are we not centering? What is the impact? What is it that drove us to make this bold decision? You know, and what feels like it's keeping us from this one? Like, that's really doing the necessary work inside of ourselves and with each other, right? As we journey together, because there's, there's layers to uncover. I mean, we know, and I've learned incredible things from Fearless Futures about the way systems of oppression work and manifest and, and how do we peel back those layers to identify. I think it's almost like the transparency of the mirror. It's like a fun house mirror, right? And we have to say like, okay, are we looking at this? If we look at this angle, does it change? Why? Why does it change? Why does this decision feel harder? Is it because there's some underlying you know, manifestation here that yes. we haven't interrogated? Even the language choices, I'm just yes. thinking through Ukraine, who is labeled a refugee versus who is not? And, and really spending time going through that. And what's what I'm hearing from you is this getting our leaders to slow down. Oftentimes in the DEI space, yeah. it's quick wins. What can we do? You know, what can we achieve by end of Q1, Q2, you know, end of year KPIs, all of that. There's danger in that when we don't take time to slow down to properly identify what is the problem? Is the problem truly the problem? Or have we misidentified, you know, the problem? And thus any solution that we put into place 
it's not going to solve the problem because it was never properly located. I love that, Sable. I think those are all like really essential pieces of what are we actually yeah. trying to accomplish? Who does it serve? <laughs> Who does it maybe not serve? Whose needs and, and you know, experiences are we centering? Who's we not? What is the impact? And is there more here that we might yeah. be missing? Like, I think that's always such a necessary question in this work. Is there more here we might be missing, right? And sometimes that's yeah. about, yes, for everything, looking around and saying, well, wait a minute, right? If we're talking about supporting LGBTQ rights and we're in a room with leaders and only one of us belongs to the LGBTQ community, we are probably missing some things, right? If this is the decision-making space. How and what do we need to do? What do we still have questions around? What have we maybe not interrogated enough? Where do we feel like there might be gaps in accountability or pairing commitment with actions, right? Let's make sure this doesn't turn performative. Because that, I think, in my experience, a lot of the performative allyship or actions that have come from companies are typically well-intentioned. And it's because it's coming from a group that often has huge gaps in awareness and knowledge. And so are trying to put forward, like you, you said, solutions or ideas that are gonna fall flat because they're not actually amplifying, empowering and enabling the communities that are directly affected to really actually lead the way. When you have a leader that suggests an action that is quite performative, what conversation, like how are you guiding the conversation to get them to realize, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything. I'm just saying it should not be that. Um, when when there is such a gap in, in their knowledge when it comes to, you know, this space and how sexism or racism or disabilism might be showing up in the company, but then also within their suggestion, like there's something getting perpetuated here that that's not going to do what you think it's going to do. This is such a real <laughs> context. Like, I actually think we do this work often. <laughs> I think my, the, the Zendesk team would agree, like we learn from each other in this too, right? Like the, the incredible GDEI team is navigating this all the time and I get to learn from them. I think a couple things. My experience is, we always want to channel enthusiasm. So there's some sort of bottling of that, right? There's different ways you can do that and acknowledge it and like call it out, right? And say like, I love that you want yeah, to be part excited. of the change. Yeah. I love, yeah, right? Like I love that you want to be actively plugged in here, right? Like, so part of it is, and it is important because this work can feel disheartening if we're not acknowledged or recognized or appreciated in it. And so that's a key piece. Um, cause we want to keep that, mo that momentum, that excitement, that enthusiasm. And I would say most of the time, all of that is coming from such a great place, but is often either not the most strategic or there are some gaps. There might be some, I'm going to use some fearless future language in here, some like operating that are logic at play. Yes. That, that are at play that someone is not aware of that actually are feeding into a stereotype or an incorrect assumption or ultimately perpetuating systems of oppression, which we know that's how those operating logics work. And so a key skill here is listen and approach with curiosity. Like when someone's coming from, I'm like, help me understand. I love that, those right? Like, what is it, right? what is it that, 
made you excited about this? Why is it that you think this is going to be right? Like, and, and genuinely asking those questions. That's what I mean. Come from that place of curiosity, not asking them with judgment, not asking them as leading questions, but genuinely. And usually in that dialogue, it becomes more evident to me where there might be a problematic operating logic or where there's a gap. And then there's an opportunity to bring awareness around that, right? And there are lots of ways to do this, again, from a place of compassion. (laughs) But you're challenging someone's gap or you're challenging them. I often will say to folks, I'm always learning in this work. I am always going to assume that you want to learn. Like that's my default assumption is that you're coming to this and we both have an open, curious mind and that you want to learn just like I want to learn. So when I see opportunities to help you learn or to, you know, reveal a gap or an awareness, something, I'm going to do it because I owe that to you. You have a commitment to this. I want to help you learn. And if I let that go, you're not learning. And in fact, you might go act on this thing and we're going to be right. Then we're going to be in a world where at the best case scenario, we're not achieving really the important strategic goals. At worst case scenario, harm is created unintentionally. There's a thread here that has come through everyone we've spoken to thus far, but definitely in this conversation as well, it's not possible to do this work if you're going to shy away from the challenging conversations because the challenging conversations do not disappear. You might not have you know, incredibly difficult conversations every day, but you can bet yourself at a minimum, there's two a week, if not more, depending on you know, your specific role within the company and w- what it is that you're trying to do and work towards. And even us ourselves as practitioners being comfortable being uncomfortable. We know the other yes. folks are uncomfortable. They might not be comfortable with it, but we ourselves have to get comfortable being uncomfortable because the average human being does not want to engage in what they perceive to be conflict, even if it's generative, positive Mm -hmm. conflict that will lead us to a solid solution. It still can be very uncomfortable to disagree with someone. That's a spark something in my brain stable. So we had some, um, there are some events that our um, employee communities are putting on for International Women's Day throughout, or International Women's Month and and the day. There was one that I attended um, late one night this week for, that was centered in our APAC employees, because Zendesk is a global company. And there was this incredible facilitator um, talking about, you know, just the ways in which limiting beliefs about others, it can affect the way we interact and, and some great stuff there. And one of the things she reminded me of, I think I had known this before, but there's kind of neuroscience behind this that shows that we, most humans will avoid pain or perceived pain, basically no matter the, the cost, like even if we know that there's a really, really desirable reward really? Like, no, after no, no. the pain, we still we're like no thank you the the idea of the pain is so hard yeah Yeah, that we won't then seek the reward and i thought wow that feels so applicable to what you just said which is that you know we we shy away from conflict and uncomfortable conversations in most cultures i will say caveat not all cultures and not all backgrounds and not all lived experiences but um generally in the way that sort of corporations have been built and designed that's that's the norm 
we know it's part of like white supremacy culture, unfortunately, and that's been replicated in a lot of organizations. One thing I do remind myself, um, and sometimes we'll say to people too, is like, well, we're talking about here, like the reason a conversation is hard is like, we're trying to unpack and unlearn sometimes decades of conditioning. It's not meant to be comfortable because we're talking about behavior change and we're talking about like, you know, growing. So I often use the analogy, like I am, I am someone who has not figured out how to consistently like floss my teeth. <laughs> to this day, I still like, I only do it like for a month before I go in for my cleaning appointment, which I dread. And then I just can't do it consistently. And I use that example with leaders sometimes and with our employees to say, like, I'm avoiding flossing because it's uncomfortable and I have to get over that hurdle. And then it's not uncomfortable. <laughs> and it's actually just part of a habit. And a lot of what we're doing in DEI work is like changing mindset, changing habits, changing behaviors, yeah. unlearning. And it's when you went into what you know, and then you're exposed to something new, it can almost feel like a shock to the system. So to deprogram in order to redesign in the spirit of equity and inclusion, that is not that is not an easy task. But I want to make sure I get this question in because I've asked it of everyone. Um, so it's only right that I continue and you know in with this pattern here. If you could have dinner, well, I mean it really could be lunch. I've been saying dinner, but let's just say break bread. If you could break bread with anyone in the equity space, past or present. Who would this person be, Megan, and why? One of the authors that has genuinely changed my life is Octavia Butler. I never fully understood when people said like, oh, I read this book and it changed my life. I was always like, are people being honest? You know, like I've loved books and I've read incredible books. And then I discovered and read and immersed myself in the world of Octavia Butler's work. And in a way, she can be considered someone who does equity work because one, she was an incredible trailblazing pioneer as one of the first Black women in sci-fi literature, right? And she she incorporates themes of humanity and equity in her writing in sci-fi. Like what? You know, there's just so many layers of brilliance there. Um and there are concepts that I've learned from her stories and her work and her just personal, like she, she, there's some notes and things. There's fun things. If people haven't read Octavia Butler, obviously huge plug for that and go on, you know, the internet, there's some great like stuff that talks about just how she lived her life and she manifested certain things and her notes are really fun to see. There's some of that has, has been um, saved. She grew up in Pasadena, which is in the LA area. And there's, they're like sometimes our exhibits and museums. But like, she's just amazing. I've learned incredible things. Um, in particular, the, the idea of change, like she writes beautifully around the idea of change. And I, I know you said that in my bio table, but like I hold on every day in this work to the belief that we are all capable of change and that change is constant. You honestly have to have some level of hope some of us might be able to out hope the other person, if you will, but, and I'm not trying to have a hope competition, folks, just to be clear, but you do have to have some level of hope to be in this space. Because if not, when the difficult days and conversations come, 
it'd be very, very challenging to try and, you know, encourage yourself to participate if if you don't have hope. I love Octavia Butler. Complete, I can nerd out about Octavia. So I'm just going to ask you because you're here. What's your fit? It might not be fair to ask this, but do you have a favorite book of hers? The the two parable books are, I think, the ones I'd, I'd have to say. And if you're going to start anywhere and you don't want to feel like you have to read a bunch of her books, which you will once you start to read them, listeners. Um, but those are just two. She actually passed away before writing. It was originally supposed to be a trilogy. Um, and she passed away unexpectedly before writing the the third book. So that's also just interesting insight into kind of where the story could go. Um, that, yeah, that li- leaves all of us opportunity to think about where it might have and could have gone. So it feels almost like a co-creation process with her. Megan, it has been absolutely lovely chatting with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for your insight and for sharing with us some pitfalls that are that truly are common with building an inclusion and equity team. You've done some great work in this space. So I just want to say thank you for your time again, Megan. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Sable. The, the last thing agreed. I mean, we could chat for hours. I, I'm just picturing us needing to get together in a coffee shop, bring Octavia Butler books and just, you know, settle in for the day. Um, but the last thing I will say, just in case this is helpful to folks is, Find your champions and advocates. Like we didn't talk too much about that, but that can be a great strategy for, especially if you're starting to see flags on the field (laughs) where you're at, find the people in the organization and outside of the organization that can help you champion for the right resources and for the right things that you need to do this work because we need you. And that is Megan's mic drop moment for the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today, Megan. My pleasure. Thank you, Sable. 